Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. of the Rocky Mountains, written by Barbara Smith, published in 1999 by Lone Pine Publishing. Mad Molly. It was April of 1833, a fine spring day in St. Louis. Down at the riverfront, the burly men who sweated on the docks and the paddle wheelers were celebrating the warm quality of the day, the same way that they celebrated all the events in their lives and marked the days that were not eventful, too. They had taken refuge in the dark taverns and were filling themselves with drink. On this particular day, in one of the louder, wilder places along the docks, a stranger wandered in. She was an old woman, a croon, wrapped in a ragged shawl, clutching a frayed carpet bag to her side. Even in the dim light of the tavern, she was plainly ugly. The hag's face was misshapen and scarred, and her gray hair hung in filthy, matted clumps, though it was clear that she was missing all but a few rotting, crooked teeth. The woman attempted to win a few of the patrons over with an intriguing smile. Oh, please, gents, she simpered. Won't you buy an old lady a drink? I've just come all the way from New Orleans and I'd love a little bit of gin, I would. She'd moved from group to group, shuffling through the solid dust that covered the thick plank floor. The men refused her outright or rudely turned their backs. Not one was willing to spend his drinking money on the wretched old woman. Finally, the bartender grew tired of her begging and pulled a heavy wooden club from behind the bar. Out! He demanded as he brandished the club into the croon's ugly face. I will not have my customers bothered by a foul-smelling old hag. The drinkers turned to watch the confrontation and were amused when the old woman dropped the carpet bag and raised her arms in a dramatically threatening pose. It's the devil's eye for you, she shrieked. A few men started to laugh, but stopped when they saw the crone's body stiffen into a grotesque pose. The shawl slipped off one bony shoulder as she began to jerk convulsively. Get her out of here, someone yelled from the back of the room. She's having a fit. There were murmurs of agreement, but no one seemed eager to touch the spastic old woman or her filthy rags. So they kept watching until her body became still and her bulging 
bloodshot eyes focused upon the weary bartender. Oh, sir, me, Dalsma, Aurismu, Karasaba. She began, and her voice was gutter and menacing. Melanie, Litho, she continued to chant. The rowdy crowd had become quiet and still as every one of the patrons stared at the disturbing sight. Finally, the hag's incantation came to an end. There was a moment of absolute silence, and then the old woman formed her lined, puckered lip into an O. She exhaled a long, raspy breath in the direction of the bartender. The man began to grow very red in the face. Several of the gawking specters assumed that he was changing complexion was due to the rage and expected to hear him unleash his fury upon the crone. But those who were standing closest to him, the patrons who were leaning against the long scarred bar, noticed that the bartender was trembling. Within seconds, the rudeness in his face and neck had progressed to a shade that was nearly purple, and his eyes bulged from their sockets. The wooden club slipped from his fingers and clattered dully on the floor. Her lips parted once, and a wet, choking sound slipped past them. His lips parted once, and a wet, choking sound slipped past them. Then the bartender's eyes rolled back into his skull until only the whites of them could be seen beneath the fluttering lids, and he crumpled to the floor. Several of the patrons called him by name. The man did not answer and did not stir, so a number of fellows rushed behind the bar to his aid. Immediately, they recognized that there was nothing that they could do. He's dead, said one man, his voice fraught with shock and disbelief. A few others tried in vain to find a pulse or a breath or a sign of life and were forced to agree with the original grim diagnosis. The bartender was dead a victim of the devil's eye. Everyone in the tavern turned to look at the old woman. She stood calmly, once again gripping her mountain case. She wore a small, satisfied smile upon her lips. "'Tis a pity,' she said to no one in particular. "'I only wanted a little sip of gin.'" One of the men, standing behind the bar, turned to the row of bottles that lined a shelf on the mirrored wall there. He grabbed several and thrust them toward the grinning croon. Take these, he spat, and get out of here. We don't need more of your trouble, witch. The old woman opened her bag and stuffed in as many bottles as would fit. The rest she tucked under her arm and she turned to leave. The hag slowly crossed the tavern, retracing the shuffling steps she had taken earlier. A low murmur of voices took up behind her. Witch, the crowd began to chant, accusingly, witch. The voices grew louder and bolder. A gob of spittle landed on the dusty wood planks just behind the old crone's feet. Devil's daughter, someone yelled, drawing the support of two dozen voices that agreed. The den reached its peak when the old woman reached the door. It came to an abrupt halt when she turned to face the room. The hag had total silence and a completely attentive audience. It was her moment. My name's Molly, she said in her crackling old woman voice. And what I know, I learned from the most powerful voodoo queens of New Orleans. I serve the dark master, but I'm willing to do business with any of you. 
for a price. She cast one final leering glance around the room, then opened the door and disappeared into the blinding April sun. Within days, the story of Molly's powerful evil eye had spread throughout St. Louis, and she began to profit handsomely from her notorious reputation. Business owners paid her for the favor of not casting her malignant eye upon their shops. People of all sorts began to seek her out to help them overcome their enemies. Lovers paid small fortunes to gain the affections of those whom they desired, and paid even more dearly to eliminate the romantic competition. Using her menacing eye, mysterious spells, and juju dolls, she plied her trade in the darkest, most dangerous corners of the frontier city. Molly spent a large portion of her earnings on the gin that she loved so much, and so it was convenient for her to hold court at the back table of her favorite shadowy bar. Sometimes there would be as many as three or four people nervously waiting their turn as Molly struck a bargain with whoever was sitting with her. Occasionally, snippets of her advice could be overheard. Quickly, stories of her success spread. Inevitably, Molly's reputation as a powerful witch grew. Take a lock of his hair and burn it while you sprinkle this powder from above, she told one weeping woman. Weeks later, the woman's neighbors were whispering what a wonder it was that her cruel husband had stopped using his fist on her. Bury this charm beneath your front step with a piece of gold, she advised a eager young shopkeeper. Within a month, his once floundering business appeared to be flourishing. Bring me something that belongs to your wife's lover, she crooked to a humiliated husband. I'll make a doll from it, very powerful. The man did as she asked, and soon his rival was dead. Spells were cast and deals were made and the devil's business was conducted daily in that bar. As Molly sat hunched over the table with her gnarled hands wrapped around the tumbler of liquor. Although all of her customers feared her, most felt they received fair value for their investment. But every so often, there would be someone who felt cheated. One evening, a young man came into the bar seeking Molly the witch. He was directed to her table in the dark back corner. Molly gestured to the chair opposite of her, and the man sat down to talk. It wasn't long, however, before the discussion grew heated. Molly stood up and tried to strike her threatening devil's eye pose, but the man pushed the table roughly against her, knocking her down. I'll curse you, and you'll suffer, she screeched as he stormed out of the establishment. I promise you'll suffer. It was never known whether Molly made good on her threat. The next morning, the police discovered the old hag's dead body in the filthy alley behind the bar. Her skull had been crushed with a blunt weapon, and her tangled, matted hair was soaked with blood. The blow to Molly's head had most certainly caused her death, but the murderer had apparently wanted to be very sure, for there was also a stake pounded through her heart. The final touch was a grudely fashion wooden cross, which had been carefully placed upon the corpse. It was never determined whether she had been killed by the irritant client or someone else. Undoubtedly, 
The witch had as many enemies as she did paying customers. Only one thing was certain. Nearly two years after arriving in St. Louis, Molly's profitable but twisted reign of dark power had come to an end. There was those who rejoiced and those who wept, knowing that they were once again required to find their own solution to life's difficult problems. In his book, Strange Women of the Occult, popular library of 1968, Warren Smith suggests that Molly may have been no more than a convincing con woman who built a profitable reputation on a hapless bartender's timely heart attack. But whether she was truly skilled witch or a manipulative, confinant trickster matters little in the end. Either way, she was a powerful character and a colorful addition to the history of St. Louis.